Welcome to the podcast for Great Figures of the New Testament, a Sunday school class offered at the First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. My name is Ryan Bonfilio, and I'm the Stembler Scholar, and will be the host of these lectures. The third lesson of this series focuses on another Mary, this time the person of Mary Magdalene, an important but enigmatic figure spoken of in all four Gospels. Who is Mary Magdalene? It depends, of course, on who you ask. According to Dan Brown, the author of the best-selling Da Vinci Code, she is Jesus' secret wife. The whole plot of the story of Da Vinci Code hinges on the discovery that the legendary Holy Grail is not the cup that Jesus used at the Last Supper, but rather is the tomb of Mary Magdalene, Jesus' wife. According to Dan Brown, Jesus and Mary Magdalene have kids, and from this line spring the Merovingian kings of France, of which Sophie Nouveau, one of the main characters in the Da Vinci Code, is a descendant. Now, not everyone thinks of Mary Magdalene as Jesus' wife. According to many popular songs, such as Johnny Cash's If Jesus Ever Loved a Woman or Lenny Kravitz's song Magdalene, Mary Magdalene is a highly sexualized figure and builds on the widely held assumption that she was a prostitute. So deeply held is this view in history that according to the Oxford English Dictionary, Magdalene had become a synonym for, synonym for prostitute by the 1600s. What does the Bible say about Mary Magdalene? Do we find in the pages of the New Testament evidence that she was the wife of Jesus? or that her bones were buried in France, or even that she was a prostitute? Or do we find here in the New Testament another portrait, a portrait of a faithful disciple, a penitent sinner, or a witness to the resurrection? These are the questions to which we will turn in this lecture. As I've done with other lessons in this series, I want to begin with a quiz to kind of test your knowledge about Mary Magdalene. Now, don't worry, this quiz is ungraded. It's just to have a little bit of fun to see how much knowledge of Mary Magdalene you bring into this lecture. So first, true or false, Mary Magdalene is the sole consistent witness to the resurrection in all four Gospels. That is, Mary is the only person that each of the four Gospels names as a witness to the resurrection. Is this true or false? Well, the answer here is true. Mary Magdalene, as we'll see in a moment, plays a very crucial role in each of the resurrection scenes in the gospel accounts. Now, here's another true-false question. True or false, Mary Magdalene is the name of the woman who washes Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair at the end of Luke chapter 7. Is this the same person that we know as Mary Magdalene? Well, the answer here is false, Sort of. In the history of the church, uh, Mary Magdalene has in fact been connected to this woman who washes Jesus' feet with her hair at the end of chapter 7. The primary reason for this is that Mary is introduced at the very beginning of chapter 8. And since uh, the woman in Luke 7 is not named, some strands of church history have begun to connect these two different women. Although the reason why the answer here technically is false is because the New Testament itself never makes this connection explicit. Okay, the next question is a true or false, or excuse me, is a multiple choice. Here are your options. Mary Magdalene is the patron, patron saint of which of the following? Hairdressers, A, B, cosmeticians, C, gardeners, 
or D, all of the above? Which of these groups is Mary Magdalene a patron saint of? Well, the answer here is all of the above. She, in fact, is a patron saint of hairdressers, cosmeticians, gardeners, and actually a host of other different uh, figures and professions. We'll see through the course of this lecture why Mary Magdalene gets connected to each of these three figures. Finally, one last multiple choice question. Tradition has it that after Jesus' resurrection, Mary Magdalene went to evangelize which of the following countries or places? A, Northern Africa, B, Syria, C, France, and D, the British Isles. Well, the answer here is France. Tradition has it that after the resurrection, Mary went off to France on a boat uh, with neither a sail nor paddles, but miraculously found her way to France. And there she spent the rest of her life evangelizing in the name of Jesus Christ. And in fact, uh, places in France today still claim to have the bones of Mary Magdalene. Well, I hope you had a little bit of fun with that. That's just a starter quiz to get us thinking about the figure of Mary Magdalene and how she's presented both in the pages of the New Testament as well in the ideas of the early church. Well, let's now look in more detail at the story of Mary Magdalene. We'll begin with two basic items, her name and her home. As we saw in the earlier lecture about Mary, the mother of Jesus, the name Mary itself is one of the most common first names of women in the first century of Syria, Palestine. So there was nothing remarkable at at all about Mary's first name. As we've said before, there are at least four and perhaps as many as six different Marys mentioned in the Gospels. Mary Magdalene, of all those different Marys, arguably receives the most attention, perhaps even more attention than Mary, the mother of Jesus. But what is particularly interesting is the name Magdalene. Now, I have to admit, for a long while, I thought Magdalene was the last name of Mary. That is, who was this person? She was Mary Magdalene, just like we might name someone Sally Smith. Well, in fact, Magdalene is not a last name. It is an adjectival form of the city from which Mary was from. That is, the city Magdala. Now, Magdala is located on the west shore of the Sea of Galilee, uh, to the north of Tiberias. In fact, you can still visit a city named Magdala today. It's actually uh, a small city or a large town uh, that you can visit Uh, This city, Magdala, is identified with the Greek city named Terakia, which actually is a Greek word meaning salted fish, which is symbolic of the fact that uh, Magdala in ancient history was a place of of heavy fishing trade. It was there right on the Sea of Galilee, so understandably it was a place for fishing, and it was actually somewhat of a wealthy city uh, that participated in the trade of fish. From all we know, Magdala, the city, uh, was a city of Gentiles. It was Hellenized. Uh, Josephus refers to there being a hippodrome at Magdala, suggesting, in fact, that this was predominantly a, a Greek culture that we found there and not a Jewish one. Magdala is only six miles from Peter's home in Capernaum. And this close proximity of these two cities has led to some speculation among scholars about the connection between Peter and Mary. Some have suggested that Mary first got to know of Jesus and his mission uh, through uh, contact with Peter in Capernaum. 
Other scholars, however, have suggested that the connection runs in the reverse. That is, Peter first came to hear about uh, Jesus and his mission through his acquaintance with Mary Magdalene. Now, the New Testament itself does not specifically lay out that, re- uh, that relationship, so we're only left to speculate about whether and how Mary might have known of Peter. Now, I want to say two other quick things about the name Magdalene or Mary Magdalene from the New Testament, for it's somewhat unusual in two other respects. First, only one other disciple in all the New Testament is identified by location, and that person is Judas Iscariot, and we'll visit him in another lecture in this series. So, Mary Magdalene, then, is only one of two people identified by location or I should say one of two disciples of Jesus identified by location uh, in all of the New Testament. We might here include a third as well, Paul, uh, Saul of Tarsus, but once he becomes a follower of Jesus, he's no longer referred to uh, in reference to Tarsus. He's only referred to as Paul. Now, the second unusual feature about Mary Magdalene has to do with how other women are named in the New Testament. By and large, women in the New Testament are only given a first name, but they are often referred to in reference to a male character that they're in relationship with. For instance, some women are referred to as mothers, that is, for instance, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, and in other cases, women are referenced with respect to their husbands, as in Mary, the wife of Clopas. But this is not the case with Mary Magdalene. Uh, she She is never named in reference to any other male figures. Scholars have, have uh, this, this unusual feature of Mary's name has led to some speculation among scholars about Mary's social, social location. Was she unmarried? Was she widowed? Did she have no children? Or did she, in fact, abandon her family and leave everyone behind to follow Jesus, as in the model of Peter? We simply don't know, but the name that Mary receives in the pages of the New Testament might be a clue to the fact that she was a woman unattached to any other earthly male. Now let's turn now to the first uh, to, to the first time that we meet Mary Magdalene in the pages of the New Testament. Outside of her appearance at the crucifixion scene and the resurrection, only Luke speaks of Mary Magdalene, and even there only briefly. And we find this occurrence at the beginning of Luke eight. And I'll read from Luke 8, verses 1 through 3. Soon afterwards, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve, that is, disciples, were with him, as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Chusa, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for them out of their resources. I want to highlight several different aspects of this text uh, to indicate the importance of Mary Magdalene. First, note that this text specifies that Mary had been cured by Jesus of seven demons. Now, when we think of demons today, we often think of scenes from that horrifying film called The Exorcist. We think of some sort of possession of a demonic spirit. And this is not necessarily what is in view here in Luke 8. 
In the ancient world, many different physical ailments, including uh, blindness and deafness and epilepsy and a variety of different mental disorders, were often described in terms of a person having a demon. And so it's possible here that Mary was not necessarily possessed in the way that we think of it today, but rather that she had some ailment and the uh, writers of the gospel simply interpreted that ailment in terms of having a demon. In either case, the fact that she... that she is said to have seven demons has uh, spurred the imagination of the church throughout history. In fact, there's an interpretive tradition in the Catholic uh, church that connects the seven demons of Mary Magdalene with the seven deadly sins, pride, covetousness, lust, anger, gluttony, envy, and sloth. Now, nowhere in Luke's account is Mary... uh, associated with any of these types of sins, but that symbolic number seven had led to this uh, imaginative connection between Mary's demons and a particular set of sins. So that's one detail to take note of in this text. Another detail to take note of is the rather mundane uh, saying that Mary provided for them, or that is all of the women, provided for them, that is disciples, out of their resources. The Greek word for provided, uh, diakoneo, diakoneo, is a word that means at its core to render a service or to act as an intermediary. We know this Greek word through terms like diakonit and deacon, which essentially means servant or minister. Now, it's not uncommon for this word to be connected to the service of meals. So, one thing that this text might imply is that Mary and these other women from the Galilee who began to follow Jesus provided food or clothing or other general needs for Jesus and the disciples. What's interesting, however, is the way in which the noun form of this verb, meaning to serve, is used elsewhere in the New Testament. Paul, for instance, speaks of Christian ministers as diakonoi Christu, uh, that is, servants or ministers of Christ. So, in this sense, it's a type of, of title for all those who minister in the name of Jesus. Paul, in a related sense, can also use this term in reference to a specific church office, that is, not a general ministry position, but a specific leadership position in the early church. This is the case in Philippians 1.1 and in 1 Timothy 3.8. Now, Here in our text in Luke 8, we don't have any specific sense that Mary held an office in the church or uh, that she was a minister in any traditional way in which we think of ministry today. However, because of Paul's use of the term diakoneo here in uh, Luke 8, um, at the beginning of Luke 8, we might wonder whether there's an implication or a hint of the fact that Mary becomes an important leader among the disciples and apostles and might well have been seen as a key figure and a key office holder in the early church. Now, the final detail of this text that I want to point out is the fact that these women, including Mary, provided for the disciples out of their resources. The natural question here is how Mary would have had the resources to support Jesus and the disciples in their ministry effort. Was she an independently wealthy woman? Was she perhaps an independent businesswoman, something in the model of Lydia from the book of Acts, who was a seller of purple cloth? Maybe was Mary connected to the fish fish trade at Magdala? 
We simply don't know, but somehow Mary had come to contribute to the mission of Jesus and the disciples. Perhaps she, like Peter, had sold everything that she had and given it away in order to support the ministry of Jesus. Now, I want to jump ahead uh, to the very end of the gospel stories, uh, to the time of the crucifixion. Mary Magdalene uh, is mostly not mentioned in the rest of the gospels, except for this one text in Luke 8. But she appears, as we've noted earlier, in, uh, in the crucifixion scenes of all four gospel accounts. In fact, in those gospel accounts, women in general feature prominently at the hour of Jesus's death. I'll give you an example from Mark 15, verses 40 to 41. There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. These used to follow him and provided for him when he was in the Galilee. And there were many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. What's notable here about Mark's description is that these are only women who look on from a distance. The implication is that the disciples, out of fear, could not even approach the cross. Perhaps uh, uh, they feared that they would be associated with this Jesus figure and thus might somehow also be punished. In either case, the Gospel of Mark emphasizes the failure of the disciples. And while that's somewhat true of Jesus' women followers, they were something of an exception to the failure that's underscored all throughout the Gospel of Mark. Now, Luke also has women looking on from a distance, uh, and he impl- he doesn't name Mary Magdalene specifically, but Luke refers to the women who had followed him from Galilee. And we know from the earlier chapter in Luke, in Luke 8, that Mary Magdalene was among the women who had followed him from Galilee. The Gospel of John offers a slightly different version of these events. In only the Gospel of John do we find women there at the foot of the cross, not looking on from a distance, but actually there at the foot of the cross with Jesus at his last hour. In John's account, there is the mother of Jesus, uh, her, uh, her mother, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and also Mary Magdalene. And John, who's referred to as the beloved disciple or the disciple Jesus loves throughout the whole Gospel account, is also there. So in this case, then, Mary Magdalene is there with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and several other close followers of the Lord as he breathes his last breath. Now let's turn to the resurrection scenes, for this is where Mary Magdalene really takes on a starring role. As I've noted before, Mary Magdalene is the sole consistent witness to the resurrection in all four of the gospel accounts. The gospel accounts say that other people witnessed the resurrection, to be sure, but Mary Magdalene is the only one named by each of the four gospels. Now, in all four of the gospel accounts, Mary Magdalene is commissioned to proclaim the good news of the resurrection after she has encountered the empty tomb and the resurrected Lord. But from here, the, the details vary from gospel account to gospel account about what exactly happens and what Mary Magdalene does or does not do. And I want to highlight for the sake of time just two of the gospel accounts, the gospel of Mark and the gospel of John. Let's first turn to Mark. In Mark's uh, account of the post-crucifixion events, three women go on the first day of the week to visit the empty tomb. Uh, There is Mary Magdalene, 
uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and then a third woman, Salome. And when they arrive at the tomb, they discover that the the stone had already rolled back. And as they look inside, they see a man in white. And he reports what had happened. That is, that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And he commissions the three women to go out and to spread this news and to report it to the disciples. His exact words are from Mark 16, 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he, and the he here is Jesus, is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Now, at this point in the Gospel of Mark, something surprising happens. Uh, Mary, Magdalene, and the other woman do not follow the commission of this, this man who they encounter. Instead, we hear this in Mark 16, 8. So they went out, and the they here are the three women, and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So here and at this point in the Gospel of Mark, the female disciples are much like the male disciples. They utterly fail in following Jesus. They cannot bring themselves to truly believe that this Jesus was the Son of God, the resurrected Lord, and they they were silent. They did not speak out uh, and convey the message that they were given. Now, what is particularly interesting at this point to note is that most of the early manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark ended at Mark 16, 8. That is, the very end of the Gospel is the silence of the women and their failure to report the good news back to the disciples. Now, when you look at the ending of the Gospel of Mark in your New Testament, you'll find that the story continues for a number of other verses. And most scholars believe that these later verses, the verses that follow Mark 16.8, were added by the early church, in part because the church was uncomfortable with a gospel ending without an appearance of the resurrected Christ. All of the other Gospels have resurrection appearances. So, one line of thought then is that the the true ending of Mark is at 6-8, and then the church at some other point in its early history added uh, two additional endings that helped bring the Gospel of Mark closer in line with Matthew, Luke, and John. So, let's look at these alternative endings. There are, in fact, two alternative endings, uh, which may or may not go together. The first ending, or that was the first ending, the second ending reads like this, and it follows immediately in your New Testament after Mark 16, 8. It reads as follows, And all that had been commanded them, that is, Mary Magdalene and the other woman, they told briefly to those around Peter, and afterward Jesus himself sent out through, uh, through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. What is striking here is how incompatible this ending is with the words of Mark 6, 8, in 16, 8. In 16, 8, the women are seized with fear and they said nothing to anyone. But here in this alternative ending, the, deci- uh, the women immediately go out, they obey the command, and they briefly re- report the news to Peter and those around him. And then we see Jesus going out in a Uh, and helping the message uh, being proclaimed to the world. So it's a startlingly different ending here, and one that's really not compatible at all with what we read in Mark 16, 8. Now, the third ending, uh, or the second alternative ending, but the third ending in total, actually can uh, work with the original ending of Mark 16, 8. And it reads like this. 
Now, after he, he being Jesus, rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went out and told those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. So in this case, we actually get a resurrection appearance of Jesus, and he is said here to have appeared to Mary Magdalene first. This ending seems to be compatible with Mark 16, 8. That is, Mary and the other women truly were seized and initially was seized with fear and initially said nothing to anyone. However, they eventually do report the good news, but only after Mary Magdalene sees the resurrected Christ. In this alternative ending, then, the key moment is the resurrection appearance. That's what empowers Mary to actually speak up and to bring the good news to the disciples. So that's the Gospel of Matthew. Let's turn then to the resurrection scene in the Gospel of John. Here, in the Gospel of John, Mary Magdalene goes alone to the tomb on the first day of the week. There she finds the tomb empty, and she runs immediately to tell Peter and the other disciples that the body had been taken. Mary's initial understanding of the empty tomb is not that Jesus had been risen, but rather that someone else, perhaps Roman guards or Jews, had stolen the body of Christ. Well, in hearing this news, Peter and John race to the tomb, and they too, of course, find it to be empty. But unlike Mary, John and Peter understand what has happened. They saw and believed. They interpreted the empty tomb not as a sign that someone had stolen the body of Jesus, but rather that God had raised Jesus from the dead. As this is happening, Mary Magdalene is in a garden, and she is weeping. And at this moment, uh, she sees two angels in white, but she still doesn't understand what is happening. Suddenly, she turns, and Jesus appears to her, and he addresses her in this manner. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Now, supposing him to be the gardener, Mary said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. Immediately she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabuni, which means teacher or my teacher. This is from John 20, verses 15 and 16. What has happened here is that Jesus appears, the resurrected Lord, appears to Mary Magdalene, but she does not initially recognize him. She still thinks he's a common gardener. And by the way, it's this garden scene that has led to that idea that we encountered in the quiz earlier, that Mary is the patron saint of gardeners. In either case, Mary only recognizes Jesus as the risen Lord when he addresses her by name and says, Mary. This scene here might recall John 10, 3 and 4, where Jesus talks about how the sheep follow the shepherd because they recognize his voice. This is what is literally happening. Mary recognizes Jesus because she recognizes his voice. Now, at this point, Mary clings to Jesus' feet, and Jesus responds to her and says, Do not keep clinging to me. Uh, This image actually is, uh, this scene where Mary clings to Jesus' feet is actually uh, widely represented in Christian art throughout the centuries. Um, And, uh, but what's interesting though to note, well, let's take a look at Jesus' words from John 20, 17. Jesus says to her, 
Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. We might wonder here, why was Mary clinging to Jesus' feet? And why was Jesus so concerned to tell her to cease doing so? Well, one idea, and perhaps the least charitable reading, is that Mary simply didn't get it yet. She was clinging to Jesus because she feared losing him. She might not have really understood that this was the resurrected Lord and that she was being called to bring good news to the disciples and the rest of the world. So in a sense then, in this reading, Mary still needs something of a theology adjustment or an attitude adjustment in order to get what is happening. Another reason, another theme that might emerge here, is that Jesus is saying, look, there's nothing wrong with clinging to my feet. In fact, uh, bowing towards someone's feet might be a very appropriate sign of worship or adoration. But what Jesus is concerned about is not that he receives Mary's worship, but that Mary leave the garden and begin the missionary journey of reporting the good news of what she has seen to others. So in that sense, he's trying to urge Mary to leave the garden both literally and symbolically, and to begin the mission of the church, of reporting the good news of the resurrection of the Lord. Some scholars throughout the history of the church have also attempted to draw a connection between this garden scene where Mary clings to Jesus' feet and another garden scene in the pages of the Bible, in particular the garden scene from the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2. Church fathers Ambrose and Augustine both have connected Mary as a type of Eve figure, but they see in Mary a reversal or a correction to Eve. In their view, Eve as, as, uh, was connected to the original sin along with Adam, and here Mary in this garden scene is not enacting the original sin, but rather is the first person to recognize and experience and converse with the risen Christ. So, whatever, so if sin had entered the world through Eve and Adam, then God's word of salvation enters the world through this encounter between Jesus and Mary in the garden. In either case, then, Mary does, in fact, cease clinging to Jesus' feet, and she leaves the garden, and John 20, 18 tells us this, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. Mary then, in this scene, uh, becomes the first evangelist. She becomes the first to announce the good news of the resurrected Lord. In fact, Peter Abelard from the 12th century refers to Mary Magdalene as the apostle to the apostles. She is the one who literally commissions and sends the apostles out into the world to spread the good news of the gospel. Abelard's view here and this portrait that we have of Mary Magdalene uh, from the end of the Gospel of John suggests that she might well have had an important role to play in the leadership of the early church. This is not named and fleshed out explicitly in the pages of the New Testament, but as we'll see in a moment, uh, other literature emerges that speaks of Mary's pivotal role as a leader in the church. After the resurrection scene, we hear no more about Mary Magdalene in the pages of the New Testament. However, her story continues to fascinate people of faith for the first several centuries after the time of Christ. In fact, she's a point of fascination, especially in the Gnostic literature produced by some factions of the Christian church in the 2nd through 4th century CE. 
In this literature, she is a heroine. She appears as the first witness of the risen Jesus, and she is said to have been particularly loved and praised by Jesus. She even is the recipient of secret revelations from God. One good example of this is the Gospel of Philip from the late 3rd century CE. There, Mary is described as Jesus' companion, and it is noted that Jesus loves her more than any other disciple. It's even specified that Jesus used to kiss Mary Magdalene on the mouth as a greeting. The presentation that we find of Mary Magdalene in the Gospel of Philip likely has fueled later speculation that she was Jesus' lover, or even perhaps his wife. Some have suggested that the prominence accorded to Mary Magdalene in the Gnostic literature preserves and develops the earliest memories of the church. That is, it it preserves the fact that Mary Magdalene was one of the the most important disciples in in Jesus' ministry and then an important leader in the early church. The role of Mary Magdalene in this theory was then subsequently diminished in the canonical literature, perhaps because of the patriarchalism of the early church. Now, we simply don't know this from a historical perspective, but it is fascinating to speculate about whether Mary Magdalene might in fact have played a more important role as a follower of Jesus and as a leader in the early church than we often give her credit for. Another interesting point in the history of interpretation surrounding Mary Magdalene is her connection to other figures in the New Testament. By the 5th century CE, Pope Gregory the Great Great, begins to associate Mary Magdalene with Mary of Bethany, that is, uh, Mary the sister of Martha. In Gregory's view, these two women are one and the same. Now, Gregory actually goes a step further, and he connects Uh, Mary Magdalene slash Mary of Bethany, with the woman mentioned at the end of of Luke chapter 7, the woman who has long hair and washes Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair. Gregory connects then these two Marys as one person with the Mary, uh, excuse me, with the woman mentioned in Luke chapter 7. And so for Gregory, these three different women become one and they merge around the name Mary Magdalene. What's of note here is that in Luke 7, the woman that we find is named as a sinner, but she's not specifically called a prostitute. In fact, we don't know anything about what is sinful about her past. But again, in the history of the church, Mary Magdalene became regarded as a prostitute, um, particularly through an influential sermon by Pope Gregory the Great in 591 CE. Gregory interprets the tears of the woman in Luke 7 as a sign of her repentance. And he also interprets her sinfulness as, in, in terms of a sexual sin, that is, in, in, uh, in terms of prostitution. The idea of Mary as a penitent prostitute has, uh, is widely present in both the theology and the art of the Middle Ages. And we can find countless paintings in where a beautiful Mary Magdalene is pictured with long flowing hair, uh, which represents the long hair of the woman in Luke 7, holding a Bible, often with a, a, a scroll, uh, excuse me, a skull in it. And the skull and the Bible symbolize not only the imminence of death brought upon by sin, but the hopeful life the hope for life contained in the pages of the New Testament. And in these uh, works of art, 
Mary is um, always gazes up towards heaven as if she's gazing up towards Jesus for forgiveness. Now, it might at first glance seem unfortunate that this leader of the church, uh, this, this faithful disciple in the Mary Magdalene, uh, has this bad reputation as having been a prostitute, even though the pages of the New Testament do not name this as, as such. But on the other hand, uh, there might be something good here um, or something uh, redemptive about it. Over the history of the church, many social service programs have been initiated in her name. In, uh, this includes shelters and rehab places for former prostitutes. They often uh, are called Magdalene Asylums. So, although it's an unfortunate association, this association has spurred the church on uh, to do good works uh, in the world. Now, the final thing to say about Mary Magdalene uh, is something about her death. Her death is not reported at all in the pages of the New Testament, but for most of the Middle Ages, the Western Church believed that after her period as a disciple of Jesus, Mary Magdalene traveled to the south of France and died there. She, in, in particular, she is said to have gone to Marseille, and she converts many in that region. Legend has it that she dies in France, um, and that in, in certain pilgrimage sites there in France still claim to possess the bones of Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene's uh, model of discipleship lives on in the church. As I mentioned before, she becomes the patron saint of hairdressers because of her long hair, uh, of at least of the woman in Luke 7, of ointment makers and cosmeticians because of her reputation as a, as a prostitute, and uh, a patron saint of perfumers, uh, in part because of her association, again, with the woman in Luke 7 who uses ointment to bathe Jesus' feet. Mary Magdalene also was associated with religious orders starting in the 13th century, and as we've named before, she becomes associated uh, with penitent sinners and prostitutes. Uh, in art, she uh, appears frequently in Christian art, often in, in a sort of erotic, eroticized image um, because of this reputation she had as a prostitute. In fact, in many um, art forms, Mary's uh, long hair covers a bare breast, uh, so there's some modesty there, uh, but there, there, there's some also sense that Mary had this conflicted past. Well, in either case, Mary Magdalene, much like Mary the mother of Jesus, becomes an important figure in the theology and thought of the early church. She, like Mary the mother of Jesus and John the Baptist, uh, lives on and continues to influence through ideas and legends the faith of the church in the 21st century. Thank you.